I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Pursuit peeps, one thing I've noticed is that as we've had incredible elite athletes sharing their stories on the show, is that so many of them have had to think outside the box to do something different, to take risks that others weren't willing to take. Well, today's guest is a perfect example of that as she has paved her own path to the top of her sport. Trisha Mangan describes herself as a chaotic skier from a tiny mountain in Western New York that was only able to train a couple of times a week. She knew that her path made her an underdog, but it was that very mindset that fueled her passion for always improving on and off the hill. As Trisha pursued her World Cup and Olympic dreams, she didn't take the conventional path of foregoing school, but instead continued pursuing studies at Dartmouth College while competing internationally. This was challenging, but it allowed her to grow tremendously as she was forced to reflect and prioritize what was really important and focus on efficiency and hard work. Trisha is now a two-time Olympian, 2023 U.S. National Champion, six-time North American Cup title winner, and an NCAA All-American and All-Academic team. She is determined and excited to continue pursuing World Cup success, and Trisha also wants to use her platform to inspire young athletes to work hard at their passions and never stop believing in their dreams. Something else we touch on in our conversation is that Trisha's brother was actually on Pursuit of Gold not too long ago. Their stories do intertwine, but are also very different at the same time. So when you're done listening to this episode, go back and check out episode 84 with para rower Andrew Mangan. All right, Pursuit Peeps, this is officially spooky season when people love to play on fear. But to top it off, there's also a lot of heaviness going on in the world right now. And fear just seems to be running rampant these days. So I'm bringing back my popular five-day fear challenge called Conquer Your Fear. In less than 10 minutes a day, in just five days, you will have all the tools to be courageous and free from the stranglehold of fear. We're going to start on October 30th, and each day you're going to receive an email with a short video that shows you exactly how to take action against your fear. Not only are you going to walk away from this challenge with more confidence, but you also have the opportunity to earn some really cool prizes that are going to be awarded for participation. This challenge will show you how to really look at fear, how to understand it, and how to face it head on. In just a few days and a few simple steps, this challenge can really help you break free from fear. So if you're ready to conquer your fear in just five days, head on over to laurawilkinson.com slash fear. That's laurawilkinson.com slash fear. All right, before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe button or that follow button so that you don't miss a single episode, but also start sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. That is the best way for us to grow, to get these amazing stories out there, to continue inspiring other people. And it also helps us bring you more resources, tools, and inspiration. I believe there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Trisha Mangan, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I love that. I think you are my first sibling set that I've had because we had your brother Andrew on not too long ago in episode 84, but you guys are totally different sports, different people. So I'm excited to hear your story, but like, I have to know the details. Are you guys really as close as he says you are? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, he actually didn't give me any context of what he said in the interview, so I can't <laughs> confirm or deny, but we are really close. There's six of us, so there's a lot and we're all very close and Andrew has been a huge inspiration 
for me, definitely in sports and also in life. So I'm glad he said that we are close. He said all of you guys are close, but he did say that you were quite the inspiration being an Olympian. So he he bragged on you just a little <laughs> bit there. But so like what number are you in the lineup of siblings? So I am number four. I have a twin brother. So we're right in the middle. I guess Andrew is in the middle too. Nice. I do like to brag that male children are definitely the most resilient. So <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Wait, the male children are the most resilient? No, no, no. Middle, middle. Oh, middle. I thought you said male. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So how was that growing up? Because you guys were all like rowers and skiers. Like you guys are a very active family is what I gather. Yes. Every single one of my other siblings and both of my parents rode in college. But we all also ski raced and we all sailed and swam and played soccer. So we did do a million sports and I chose skiing over rowing in high school (laughs) and a bunch of my siblings did both. But I actually really love soccer, too. So I did soccer and skiing until I graduated high school and then I had to give up soccer and now I'm still going with skiing. (laughs) Well, so tell me what made you choose skiing and soccer over the other things? Like, what was it that drew you to the sport? I think that I, one, started both of those sports younger than rowing was just a high school thing. I had done them for longer. I felt very passionate about getting better at them. I'm a very, I wouldn't say obsessive person, but when I start doing something and really love it, I kind of go all in. And I feel like that's just what happened with skiing and soccer more than the other sports. That's cool. I think I can relate to that. I think most people probably listening to this can relate to that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what was it about skiing? Because you do like downhill and super G, like you do the intense, super fast races down. Like, did you try other skiing events? Like what drew you to those specifically? Just adrenaline (laughs) or what? (laughs) So we grew up in Buffalo and grew up skiing at this very small 800 vertical feet hill called Hollymont in Ellicottville, New York. My parents put us in the race program when my twin brother and I were six. I just loved it because all of our friends did it, like kind of the cool kids at the club did it. (laughs) And there were other teams. I think there was a mogul team, but because it was such a small mountain, we weren't really exposed to big mountain skiing or freestyle or backcountry or anything like that quite honestly, racing was the most fun thing to do in my mind. (laughs) So that's, I think, why we started in ski racing. I just loved it. So I never, once we started doing it, I didn't really consider switching to a different version of skiing. (laughs) So were you competitive with your twin? Oh my gosh, yes. I cite him as the reason I am good at ski racing because... Oh, really? Oh, 100%. People are always, the question is like, how did you make it out of Western New York? It's so small. And I have a very untraditional background. I was pretty much a weekend warrior through until junior year of high school, didn't go to a ski academy. Oh, really? Or anything. Yes. And I usually say that it's because I was just so competitive with my twin brother and he was really, really good as well. So just set a high bar. <laughs> nice. I love it. Competing against the boys. You got to love that. Yes, always. You have said that like in your little bio, you have like, I knew my path made me the underdog and that mindset fueled my passion for always improving on and off the hill. What about being the underdog drives you? Like, cause some people they're just like, that's too big of a hill to climb. It's too overwhelming. What do you like about that? Yes, that is very true. I think growing up, I always 
knew that there were so many better girls out there. So I truly just focused on myself. And like I said, because I had my twin brother that I was trying so hard to beat, I was focused on getting better every day too. And then when I would go to races, I would know I've worked super hard. I've put in all the work. No one thinks I can do this. I probably don't think I can do this. Like there's absolutely zero expectation. So I'm just going to focus on the skiing and try as hard as possible and see what happens. And so I think that's both what motivated me and then what was so helpful in my skiing career as well. I think that's awesome. Like you said, having no expectation, like that's a big thing people have been talking to me about lately is this weight of expectation. So to be able to be free of that. Yeah, that's huge for sure. Now, when you got into high school, you said you weren't super competitive until about junior year. What really set you apart that junior year? I was just competing at my home club. I every year would make it to Eastern champs and I would do pretty well. But for whatever reason in my head, I was just like, as the other girls, I honestly didn't even know what the national team was. I wasn't one of those kids that grew up being like, I'm going to go to the Olympics. But I was extremely competitive and I loved skiing and I just worked really hard at it. And I qualified my freshman year of high school for U16 nationals. And it was the first year it was held. And I went out to Park City. I didn't even know it was a race. I just thought we were going out there to, you know, do drills and assessment, which is unbelievable looking back <laughs> at it. So I went out there <laughs> alone. I didn't bring my tuning stuff and the race racks and everything. I didn't bring a coach. I brought one of each skis and all of these other kids come with, you know, two pairs of each skis and their race stuff and their coach. And long story short, I got absolutely crushed pretty much last in everything. It was bull, very cool and fun to meet all those kids and to see what the national level was. And then also extremely motivating because I had another year in U16. So I remember obviously being super discouraged. Who likes to lose? Um, so that was in the spring. And then I remember in the fall, I started to see, because the girls that won there joined the junior national team. And I started to see pictures of them all training together and doing dryland workouts and stuff on Facebook. I so vividly remember being like, I want to do that so badly. And so that year I was a sophomore in high school and I trained super hard. I remember I took a lot of Thursdays and Fridays off of school and went down and skied and trained. And I went and qualified again for U16 nationals. And then I ended up getting third in one of the events and second on a run and finished third overall and then qualified for the junior national team. So it was a very big inflection point in my skiing career. Wow. I would say so from like last to third. I mean, that's incredible. Like, did you come back and this was like all you and like you're motivated, you're just training harder We're did you come up with a plan with your coach? You know, I mean, obviously you're like, I don't want to lose. Like, I want to be this thing. But other than the desire and putting more work in, was there any other things that you did? Or was that kind of just the beginning? And that's what it took. Honestly, I was pretty young. So I don't remember if I'm sure I sat down. I definitely knew that. I mean, my parents are so supportive with all of us giving us the opportunities and resources. But they were also amazing in that they let us be the driving force. So, you know, I figured it out with my teachers to leave for extra days of school. And then our 
coach down there. He lives down there. So he was able to do more days during the week, which was unbelievably nice of him too. But no, really, it was truly just being focused, having this one thing that I was working towards and just kind of upping the intensity of everything. I love it. So where was soccer in this mix? Because you said you were really still doing soccer. Was that just kind of in the off season? Yeah. So soccer is mostly what's in the East Coast is spring and fall. I was on my school team. I was on a club soccer team and I just missed all of the winter training, (laughs) which I'm sure my soccer coach wasn't super thrilled about, but... Like we'll call it cross training. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I always worked very hard when I got to soccer practice, so I don't think he minded too much, which was also very nice. So where did you go from high school to like that point forward? Because I didn't even know skiing was something you could do in college. And I know you can't everywhere, obviously, but what were your plans from high school to like go to that next step? Like, how did you process all those decisions? Was there recruiting? Were there thoughts of like not doing college and just doing sport? What was that transition for you like? Because that's a big one for a lot of people. I think my path was, it was just non-traditional in that I really truly focused one year at a time. But I will say that education was always super, super important to me. So the thought of like a lot of skiers at least take a gap year. So that was kind of in my head. I was never like, okay, I'm going to focus 100% on skiing and not go to school. Like that was never even a thought in my, in my head. So to take a step back after that sophomore year, I did qualify for the national team, but I stayed at my high school in Buffalo I just missed a ton of school (laughs) because we were on the road pretty much from November to March. We'd come back for a week at a time every other month, basically. I was lucky enough that I was at the level where I was recruited. I guess I started talking to the coach my junior spring, then took all of my tests and applied and got in early. I also truly do not remember making a conscious decision or ever considering anything other than where I went to school. It was just like, oh, that's where I want to go. Like I'm talking to the coach. (laughs) I got in, which is also, I know, not very traditional. And I'm very grateful that it was a very smooth process. I will say that I had to cram like five APs, my SATs, our SAT subject test, which they don't even have to take anymore, um, and ACTs <laughs> into two two months of my end of my junior year, which was quite challenging. But that's kind of the sacrifice you have to make. And I, and I will say, because I talk to a lot of athletes, I mentor a lot of athletes that are in high school, and I will say that being a student athlete is a huge challenge, but it's also really inspiring when you think about it because you find yourselves in these situations where you have pretty crazy deadlines and you always seem to be able to get through it. I guess, depending on how tight the deadline is, maybe it's not a hundred percent of your best work, but you just find these little tips and tricks to be super efficient. And I was homeschooled growing up. So I think that early on, I kind of knew that if you put your mind to it, you can get schoolwork done really, really quickly. That definitely came in handy a lot, especially in high school and college. So did that make you pretty disciplined, do you think, the homeschooling? I think that it just made me aware. Like self-disciplined, I mean. I think it made me aware of my own ability to teach myself and to get things done because 
What I find with when I tutor or mentor kids is they so often doubt their own abilities to teach themselves these things. And I think that if we all just believe in ourselves a little bit more, we can always do a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. I feel very fortunate that I was taught that at a young age from my homeschooling background. That's awesome. So your junior year, you're like, this is the college I'm going to. I'm cramming everything I need to do to get in there. What was that transition from high school to college like? So then I was still on the US ski team and I didn't take a full gap year, but I didn't go to at Dartmouth, there's trimesters. So I didn't go to the fall or the winter term. And I started in the spring term, which again, very unusual to do. So I went to college. You're just paving your own path. I love it. <laughs> yes. Every step of the way, <laughs> for better or worse. So I started in the spring and I was definitely nervous or not nervous, but just didn't know what to expect, but quickly became friends. I knew a lot of the skiers and then I just made friends kind of through the skiers I knew and had an incredible experience. And I didn't start racing for Dartmouth until two years later because I only went in the spring and summer, my first two years of college. Well, how come? Because I was competing with the U.S. ski team internationally. And at that time, it wasn't common at all for any athletes to do both, to compete for school and the national team. And then two years later, after my first Olympics, I was at this point in school where I kind of, I needed to go in the winter for classes and I wanted to ski for school and try something a little bit different. So there was one winter that I did both the U.S. ski team and Dartmouth. That was a hard time. But I also, at the end of that season, got cut from the U.S. ski team, which was this whole thing. <laughs> and then I competed for Dartmouth the following year and finished school. Then I competed for two years on the World Cup as an independent athlete. So I did everything totally myself. And then this past season was the first I qualified back for the team. So now I'm back on the U.S. ski team, but I was off of it for five years. Yeah. Whoa. OK, so we have a lot of backing up to do here. I feel like a whole lot of things happened in that like <laughs> two minutes of talking. So let's back up to like. When did the Olympics become a thing for you and a dream for you? Because, you know, you were saying in high school, like, it was really like, I just, I'm competitive and you were racing your brother and then you got exposed to what, like, making the 16U national team would be like. And so you ramped it up, but like, you weren't, still weren't thinking of the Olympics. So at what point did that become something on your radar? Pretty much the summer and fall before the first Olympic season. So the fall of 2017, we obviously, everyone at that point knew it was Olympic season, but I still in no way thought that I had a chance at qualifying. Again, I just truly focused and I still operate like this in my skiing at very, very small steps, just the day-to-day -day trying to get better. I don't even really like, it's not that I dislike it, but I don't really set like, I want to get this place at this race because to me, that just doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't check out. I'm always someone that gives 110% no matter what. So it's like, oh, well, I want to do as best as I possibly can. And I'm going to do everything I can to be as fast as possible. And skiing, there are so many things outside of your control. That's just been a bit of a healthier way to process it for me. So going into the Olympic season, I was very young. I was, yeah, I was 18 and for sure didn't have very good chances of making the Olympics at all. 
And then as we started racing that season, obviously everyone's really stressed about it and it's on everyone's mind. That was honestly a pretty tough year for me. There's just so much pressure and stress and I was away from home and I definitely had a little bit of all of my friends are having fun at college and I'm over here in Europe by myself and I'm not skiing well and I'm very, very, very sad every day. And then in January, that was when, okay, maybe some of us younger girls might have a chance at it because it looks like there's going to be more spots, but still it was never like, I think I can go. It was more just, okay, I'm going to try as hard as possible because obviously this is an important year. And then the Olympic team was named. I didn't make it. I didn't think I was going to make it. I knew I didn't make the criteria. There was a lot of stress relieved, honestly. There was stress relieved when you didn't make the criteria? Yeah, because it was just like, okay, gosh, this is over. Like, thank goodness. Now I don't have to freak out at every race because this is a (laughs) chance to make the Olympics. And then the next weekend was another World Cup and I scored my first ever World Cup points. I got 19th in the Alpine combined. And basically to make the Olympics, you have to score World Cup points. So this is what I was trying to do all season. And then... But then when the pressure was off, then you were free to actually do what you've been trying to do. Yeah, exactly. And then one of the athletes that made the team got hurt and I was called up as the last alternate a week before the Olympics started. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so a lot to unpack here. There's so much going on. So this was after you finished graduating and you were starting school, but you kind of deferred this season so that you could race. That was this first season like that? The second season like that. I had already gone to two terms of school, but only in the spring and summer. So I was deferring the fall and the winter term and then going to school in the springs and the summers. So it was the second time. So I get that it was lonely and stuff, but like, where do you think the pressure was coming if you didn't think you had a shot and you weren't, you said you weren't super gung ho, like, yeah, maybe we will. But like, where do you think the pressure was coming from? I say that I didn't think I had a shot, but at the same time, it's an Olympic year and everyone knows that because we are racing World Cup. So even though I was so young and like the chances of me scoring World Cup points was slim, like all I had to do was have one amazing race and I could make it. So there weren't good chances, but in the back of my head, I knew that. Always a chance, right? <laughs> like it's possible. And the stress around everyone else too and the whole team. So you're feeling the other vibes, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, looking back at that, like if you were mentoring like one of the athletes you said that you mentor, like what advice would you give them in those moments to not take on the pressure of everyone else? Like how do you avoid or is it impossible? Like Gary, do you just in the environment and you just become part of that pressure blob or can you somehow separate yourself from that? It's definitely challenging. I think that to some extent, like there's nothing you can do. You know that these races have the opportunity to qualify you for the Olympics. But I think that the more things you can do to trick your brain out of focusing on that, the better. So I, in previous years after that Olympic season, I made a point to start calling family and friends way more and just to like remove myself from the intensity of the ski environment. And then I also got a little bit better at the actual mental aspect during races as well. I love it. 
I think that's awesome. So, and one thing you mentioned is like, you don't like to set these big goals of like, I want to get this place. I want to do this. But what kind of goals do you set for yourself? Is it a time? Is it skiing a clean race? Where do you kind of set your goals within that? Because you are wanting to improve. You're wanting to make changes. So like, how do you focus your goals to make it more specific for what you want to help you? I do a couple of things. One, I am super focused on coming up with intentional plans for training. So when I'm on the hill or when I'm at, for example, I was just out of three week training camp in Argentina and I sat down with my coaches before and we laid out, these are some of my weaknesses that I'm trying to work on. Like I want to try to get, figure out how to do this in my skiing to get to this next level. And then on a day-to-day basis, it's, they know what I'm trying to work on. I know what I'm trying to work on. They can help me if it's like, we need to take a little bit of a step back. So it's super, super, super process oriented and also effort oriented because I am 100% someone who is super hard on myself, but I also love working hard. Like that's what makes me feel the best about myself. And when I'm in a start gate, I gain confidence from knowing like I did everything possible I could in the prep period. So it's a couple of different things, but on race day, my goals are kind of more, how well did I execute my plan? Because in downhill ski racing, one, you're never going to have a perfect run. At least I'm not. (laughs) And it can feel random at times. So for me, it's helpful to come up with this plan. How am I going to ski technically? How am I going to ski tactically? And then try to execute and then look at, okay, did I execute the plan? Yes or no. And If I did, did it work or not? Like, was it a good plan or not? And that kind of frees myself from, it kind of makes it more objective than being like, oh my gosh, you totally suck today. You got last place. And then uh, versus like, okay, well, I came up with this plan with my coaches and we thought it was going to be really good. I did the plan, but we just didn't have the right line or I misjudged the snow or the conditions or how hard it was. So I executed the plan, but it just didn't work. Or I didn't execute the plan. And then we need to think about why, like, was I focused on one thing versus something else? So very process oriented. And I think that's really, really intelligent because like we were talking about expectations earlier, like so many people have these expectations and that's a dangerous place to be because expectations are like all feelings based. It's not objective at all. It's not always measurable because you can hit an expectation. It's because of how you want to feel or how you expect other people to feel about what you're doing and react to what you're doing. And if you miss that expectation or you, you get it and then the next time you want it more and then you, you know what I mean? You're at some point you can't live up to those expectations because it's just this idea in your head and it's not based on objectives or reality necessarily. So I think that's really, really smart because when you focus on the process like that and make that your goals or your expectations, you are also releasing yourself from worrying about the outcome, from worrying about expectations, from worrying about all the outside factors, and you are wholly focused on the moment and executing these specific things. And I think that's really, really smart. And people, anybody listening, like think about what she's saying, because this is a really smart way to let go of all the the stress and anxiety in a competition and wholly be present in the moment, like every athlete wants to be in that moment. And just quickly to comment on something that you said, I definitely, when I was younger, thought way, way, way more about what other people are going to think. What if I get last in this race? Don't we all? (laughs) All of those thoughts. And I honestly really proud that that it doesn't really affect me anymore. 
And I think that's just part of maturing as an athlete. But I do think that being able to truly believe in yourself that there's wins and learning lessons from every race, regardless of what the scoreboard says, has helped me believe that like, okay, it's fine that I got last today because I learned a lot from it and I was proud of the effort I put in. And then that has, I think, slowly helped me not obsess or worry so much about what other people think. Right. I think that's brilliant. And it's not like, yeah, I'm fine that I got last. I mean, like, obviously, you're probably going to like exactly. be a little disappointed or whatever, but you can walk away knowing there are still wins or there's still lessons you can learn from that, still things you can take away to improve next time because you know you gave it everything you had in that moment. You tried to execute this plan. So I think that's an important takeaway. Yes, you don't necessarily have to be satisfied with something that doesn't go well, but you can objectively look at what went right and what went wrong. And that's an important distinction that, that people need to learn, that athletes specifically need to learn how to make. I think that's great. So, okay. You make the Olympic team a week before the Olympics. Like walk me, walk me through that. I got to hear the details here. That's kind of insane. (laughs) Yeah. So it actually happened with one of my friends and teammates the week before there was an athlete that got hurt and she got the call up. And then the next week, After I had scored my points, another athlete got hurt. So I kind of knew there might be a possibility, but it was so close to the Olympics that I wasn't sure. And I was also at World Junior Championships. So I was kind of just focusing on that. And then literally at the bottom of one of my races at World Juniors, I got a call from our head coach and he said, congrats, you made the Olympics. I was definitely a little bit in shock, but (laughs) immediately called my family and told them and then like started crying and was just so, so excited. And I mean, there's just so many emotions because you work so hard and then obviously it's a very big deal to be able to go to the Olympics. Yeah. So what, I mean, that had to be a whirlwind. I mean, you're a week out. Like, how do you even prepare? Could your family even get there? Like it was in, it was in South Korea, right? Pyeongchang. Yeah. So it was actually like a week from my first race, which I didn't really know at the time. I didn't know what I was going to be racing or how that worked. So two days later, I drove to Munich to meet the team that was flying over the speed team because the speed events were later and we flew over. We went through uniform processing, which is was just so much fun. That's awesome, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it was. Tell everybody what that is for those that don't know. Okay. So when you go to the Olympics in non-COVID years, you get to go to uniform processing, which is you go and you try on all of the Olympic swag and you get to pick out your size and They had Oakley's and just so much stuff, Olympic swag you get. And it truly feels like Christmas and it's so fun. They do such a good job of making you feel so special, so special. (laughs) Exactly. And I will say that that was especially nice for me because I, that entire Olympics felt like, oh, I don't really deserve to be here. Like, I'm not good enough. I was an alternate and I just put so much pressure on myself So the uniform processing was very special, but then we can talk more about that, but to walk you through, then we drove to the Olympics. My family immediately was trying to get over there. And my mom is so, so, so good at all of that stuff. And I think that she, yeah, there's a lot of funny stories from how they figured out how to get all seven of my family members over, including one of my brother's 
losing his passport. No. <laughs> and getting a new one in the like four days that they had. Oh my goodness. Then my first race was the GS race. And I honestly think it was like four days after I got there and my family was there in time, but the race ended up getting postponed, which was very fortunate because then we got a couple extra days of training because the snow was really weird. Yeah. That whole Olympics was quite intense in very many ways. <laughs> you mentioned that you were like as excited as you were and like overwhelmed with excitement to like go through processing and to get there. You were also having all these doubts and like feelings like you shouldn't be there. Walk me through that. I actually think this is more common than people think for at least I have since talked to athletes who have had similar experiences. But for me personally, it was just I was so young and there were older athletes that they hadn't scored World Cup points. So like objectively, I was the next one in line. It was not a discretion decision at all, but I just felt like I didn't really deserve it and I needed to prove myself. And there was so much stress. We also weren't staying in the Olympic Village. The ski team had little apartments next to it. We were really in the stress bubble. Was that just to keep you closer to where you were competing? It was just to keep us away from everything else <laughs> because Michaela Schifrin obviously was a huge, huge favorite. And I think that when you are in contention for medals, it's probably easier to be on your own program and to just have control of every single little detail, which proved very successful for her. <laughs> and I felt really bad afterwards telling people that like the Olympics was this like not all the glamour and glitz that it was made out to be for me because it was like everyone dreams about going there. I was so, so lucky with the timing of it to be there, but it was just so hard and so much pressure and I didn't enjoy it. And that was totally my own fault and a huge lesson I took into my second Olympics. But for a while, I didn't want to talk about it because I felt so guilty about the fact that like this is everyone's dream and I'm over here, not complaining about it, but just like not fully embracing the moment. And that's okay. Like, you know what I mean? That's your journey. And like everybody's journey doesn't look the same and it's not the same experience for everyone every time. So it's okay to, to have a different outlook on things that doesn't make it wrong. <laughs> so how did it end up for you? And how did you, like, what were your next steps after that? Were you like, this is a terrible experience. I don't want to do that again. Or were you motivated to like make it something else? Like, so walk me through what, like, did you actually get to race in that Olympic Games? So the GS race got postponed. I raced in that. There was actually something that happened. We wear speed suits and I was accidentally given the wrong speed suit that wasn't this legal. So in the start of my first Olympic race, they always check the suits to see that they have this pin on them to show that they're legal. And I'm two people to go away. And she's like, where's your pin? And I am looking frantically on my suit and there's no pin. And of course, I start crying. And I'm like so stressed out listening to this. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was it was really sad. There was a very, very friendly New Zealand coach. His athlete was racing behind me and he's like, it's OK, like, just go like we'll figure it out at the bottom. So I like pushed out Starkey, tears in my eyes. And then immediately when I got on the pitch, just absolutely blew up and crashed. <laughs> so I didn't finish my first race. That honestly took me a long time to process because it was like, okay, I worked so hard to get here. And then 
something totally or what felt like it was out of my control happened and like tore away what was supposed to be a special moment. But it was still quite special. And I remember being in the lodge before the race, before I even found out about that and really having the moment of like, oh my gosh, I'm at the Olympics. I'm going to be racing in the Olympics. That was a very special moment. So I guess uh, there, there were, there were both. And then I raced again in the team event, which was really fun. It was the first time it's happened at the Olympics and we don't race that at all during the year. It's just a world championships and Olympic thing. So that was honestly a little bit less pressure. And at that point I was like, you need to like start to um, like stop being sad. But after the Olympics, I did feel a little bit like, like after that season, I had a reflection of, I just had the best season of my life and I'm pretty miserable and I should probably reevaluate some things. And so how was that reevaluation? Like, what did you come up with? It's hard because everything happens at the end of the season and then it's springtime and I went to school and was super busy. So you never really, or I never did a good job of processing everything. And then I'm back on the team and then you just told like, go to these camps. So I didn't really do anything proactively, but then going into the next season is when I started to consider racing for school because I was just in settings that weren't honestly helping me ski my best and I needed a perspective change. And I thought a long, long time about going to school. And and I truly felt that going to school was going to be the very best thing for my ski racing. I tried to explain that to the U.S. ski team. Unfortunately, they did not see it that way. But it wasn't, like I said, no one was going to school and skiing back then. Now a bunch of athletes are and it's much more accepted and the coaches are much more willing to work with athletes. But back then it was not so it was a super hard decision. And ultimately it led to the ski team yeah, letting me go and not inviting me back on the team. So so how did you take that? I mean, I, at least you had school to like look forward to and cling to, but was that hard? Or were you kind of like good riddance? I need a break or, you know, it was a little bit of both. So the year after I was cut, I skied and that was the first year I skied totally without the U.S. ski team. That was a really big year for me because a lot of times when athletes get cut from the ski team, it's really easy for them to, you know, not commit as hard to skiing. College racing is not very intense compared to national level. And it would have been super easy for me to just enjoy ski racing and kind of take my foot off the gas. But I actually did the opposite. I felt that I was as motivated as ever. And that was a big lesson for me because college racing is, it's really hard to continue at the caliber of national training without the U.S. ski team support. In what way? How come? Because you don't have any of the resources. The odds are stacked against you in every way. Like when you're on the national team, things aren't handed to you, but they kind of are handed to you. <laughs> I gotcha. And when you're in college, you don't get as good of training. You don't get opportunities in races. You don't get the support at all. It's really up to yourself. So it, it would have been so easy for me to just race for college and then kind of be done. But instead, I was more motivated than ever. And that was kind of an indication to me of, wow, I really love this sport because in the moments when it was the hardest for me to 
excel was when I was most motivated. And I took that as, okay, like, let's keep doing this and see what we can do by myself and try to get back on the team and back racing at the World Cup level. And so how was that pursuit? Obviously, you're excited and you're motivated, but you're saying you have less support and less opportunities. So what was that road like to get back on the ski team? That was a very, very, very hard and long road. (laughs) (laughs) It was very difficult and I didn't have very many resources, but there were also so many silver linings. The past two seasons, I've had to fundraise because it costs a ton of money to ski race that I don't have. And kind of opening myself up to fundraising and asking people for help has truly been like one of the biggest blessings in my life because it showed me how many people do want to support me and do believe in me. And that's allowed me to believe in myself and also to lean more into what community in sport is and what it means. And I certainly didn't realize that when I was on the national team and kind of in my own little bubble of self-pity. And so, yeah, racing as an independent athlete was definitely the hardest thing I've done so far, but also by far the most rewarding. That's really cool to hear. So doing this next kind of run for the next four years more as independent, like what was that lead up to the Olympics and qualifying to the Olympics like? Was it a totally different scenario? Yeah. So that Olympics was totally different. I very much was trying to qualify that year. That whole season was, it was just, it's just so different when you're competing as an independent athlete, because every single thing you do is your decision. And it's a big decision. I'm committing my entire life or not my life, but like these years, very important years to ski racing. I'm spending my own money on it. I'm asking other people to spend their money on it. So it just totally changes the game of like, I'm so lucky to be able to do this versus where, you know, just, I was also so much younger when I was on the team. So I, I don't think I was very mature, but it was a completely different perspective of just really trying to focus on the process. And I was so busy with all of the little details and figuring out everything myself that I don't think I even (laughs) had time to worry about the pressure. (laughs) Yeah, And of course I felt the pressure, but it was nowhere near that first year, even though I like, it was very much my goal to make the Olympics. Well, I love that your whole outlook was different too, though. It's like, it's this gift because you're having to earn this gift in like this different way. Like that's really cool. So what was that Olympics like? This one was in Beijing, right? In 2022? No, I was... And post-COVID too. Like that was the COVID kind of crazy. So I was in COVID, yeah. Okay, so yeah, tell us about all this. (laughs) Yeah, so I um, am very good friends with all the girls on the ski team. And I see them at the races. Like I don't train with them, but we're all at the same races. And when I go to the World Cup, I compete for the USA. So I like have to wear the team uniform. And when I'm at the races, the team has been supportive. Like their coaches will give me a course report, for example. And when I made the Olympics, very, very supportive as well. It's a little bit different because it's not really your coaches, but they were still as supportive as anyone could expect. And I will say that Team USA and the USOPC does a really, really good job of making athletes feel super supportive and safe and 
at least in my experience. So going to the Olympics was like the most supported I felt all year, which was awesome. That's good. And so how did the Olympics go? Was it a better experience the second time around? Yes. Oh, and so it was during COVID. So we all had to stay in the Olympic Village and it truly felt like we were at summer camp. We just <laughs> were in our in our uh, little dorms and we went to the dining hall and we went skiing on the mountain that was right there. <laughs> That's nice. But I totally was like, you are going to enjoy this. And I did. And it was great. And I fully let myself be like, wow, like you did this. And I will say that throughout all the past seasons, I write a blog and to all of my supporters and was updating them. And, and it felt so much more like we did this. And it felt so special to all the people that had supported me that I was able to make the Olympics that I was just so happy to be able to share that with them and for them to be a part of it. So yeah, it was much, much more. Well, see, that's beautiful. And like we've talked about on this podcast before, like purpose-based performance versus like fear-based performance. And when you have a purpose and like you were doing it not just for yourself, but you're not doing it with and for all these other people who are supporting you, like they're supporting you, but yet you're kind of doing it for them. There's a bigger purpose and like that can free you up to do really cool things as well. So I think that's really a beautiful picture of what it could be. Like, you know, I think a lot of people, especially as athletes and elite athletes, it becomes very selfish, right? In this very, like you have to be selfish and very focused on self, 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 you know, into these zones. But when you can take a step back and you have this community supporting you that you can look at and be thankful for and know that you're there because of them, it frees you a little bit from all of that bubble you get stuck in, you know, as an athlete. 100%. I often struggled with like how selfish skiing was. And as like, why do I think that I can just spend all this time trying to get go faster down a mountain <laughs> and then to be sad about it too. Uh, that that was really hard for me too. It's like, I have no right to be sad. And that's something actually my brother, Andrew helped me a, a lot realize um, because with his accident, and if you have, if you didn't listen to Laura's podcast with Andrew, he had a freak accident and broke his neck and was paralyzed from the neck down. And that was um, my first Olympics was right after that happened. And I just felt so guilty whenever I felt sad because I was like, I don't deserve to be sad. Like my life is so privileged and knowing what Andrew went through, I just was like, I don't deserve to be feeling like this. And of course that's not healthy. And then it just makes it so much worse. But I remember talking to Andrew about that and him kind of being, of course, this super wise, stoic soul that he is, talking about how like everyone has their own lived experiences and there's nothing wrong with feeling bad about a race. Like you put a ton of work into that. And he really helped me ironically be okay with feeling upset about these things. And that in turn helped me process them better and get over it quicker and overall have more of a positive outlook on things because he is just so unbelievably positive. Like that's what I admire most about him. That was a big shift as well. That's so cool. You guys have such a strong family. I love that you guys support each other and, and help each other have that different perspective. And because he talks a lot about how you motivated him as well and kind of encouraged him and showed him that things were possible. So I love that. What is next for you? Because you, you're still skiing. I know you get like community support, but do you also have sponsors? Like, how do you make this work beyond college scholarships? You know, like once you're kind of in this, like you're in life beyond college, 
how do you make this work where you're still able to ski? Now that I'm on the national team, when you're on the national team, everything is all of your expenses, training and travel and competition, everything expenses. There's no fee to be on the national team. It's all covered. Whereas when I was independent, I had to pay for all of my travel. I had to pay for a coach, a service man. Like, um, and that's why I had to raise so much money from my community. But now that I'm supported, I don't ask for private donations. I just have sponsorship money, which I received in the previous seasons as well. But now I'm just receiving sponsorship money. And I work with a couple of amazing brands and partners that I'm so thankful for. And like I said, my years as an independent athlete really showed me how important community is. And I think that crosses over a lot to sponsorships as well as like, what can you offer them in exchange and help build their brand and also partner with things that are meaningful to you. So yeah, I have, I have a lot of great sponsors now. So what does it look like going forward? Are your eyes on 2026? <laughs> yes. Like I said, I truly take things a year at a time. Um, <laughs> so my reason for ski racing has pretty much always been that it's like the biggest challenge in my life so far. And from those challenges, I've learned the most about myself and still feel it's just a never ending challenge. Um, and I am really proud that I think that I've gotten better every year. So as long as I keep getting better and I keep being challenged by it and loving it and being able to do it financially, I think I will continue. But I don't know if that's one year or 10 years. We'll see. I'm just going to keep working hard to be able to do it as long as possible. I love it. Love for the sport and just take it each year, see, see where it takes you. And you have a Substack, right? Where you you send out like a, a is it a blog or a newsletter? Or... Yep, exactly. Yeah, I send out weekly updates. And that's something I started when I started reaching out to people to help support my journey as like a way to give back. And I absolutely love writing and it seems that people love reading my blogs. <laughs> I keep doing it. But yeah, I love sharing my journey as much as possible. I love helping younger racers. I just feel so thankful and grateful for all the support I've received. And the most special moments are definitely for me being able to give back and share my journey. So anyone and everyone is welcome to follow my Substack. Where do we go to sign up? It's trishamangan.substack.com. Awesome. We will, we will make sure to put that in the show notes so that people can sign up to get your weekly updates. And you've got a new season coming up here soon. Is there a most exciting race about this new season? Because I think you said it was kind of an in-between year where there's no Olympics or Worlds, but there's still a World Cup season, right? Well, I'm so excited for this season because it's my first year back on the team. So I'm fully supported. It already is just so much more resources and everything. So I think this could be a really big season for me. And yeah, I'm so excited to just start racing. It's why I do it. So <laughs> the races can't come soon enough. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, good luck this year, Trisha. And we will be cheering you on. Thank you so much for inspiring us, being vulnerable and open about all the feels. Because I know sometimes it's not comfortable to share the stuff. Or like you said, like there's guilt sometimes about those things. But when you can share it and show others that it's normal and they're not the only ones going through it and show them how to get to the other side, I think that's really powerful. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for your amazing podcast. I love it. And it's an honor. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests. And it also helps other athletes to find this show. 
Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.